Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn, and today more than ever before, companies, brands, and their partners need to stand for something beyond the bottom line. I've created this program to provide insights and ideas to share with you so that you can apply them to your work the very next day. The goal here is to up-level your purpose and to benefit companies and society. So please join us. With me today is a dear friend and a delight, and his name is Akhtar Badshaw. And he's the author of the just-released book, The Purposed Mindset. The Purposed Mindset tells the inside story behind how Microsoft built its culture of giving, including powerful stories from Microsoft alumni who were in the room when these decisions were made or who went on to make powerful change in the world emboldened by their time at Microsoft. The Purpose Mindset also tells the story of how this culture of giving that has been so successful at that huge technology company in regard to job satisfaction, recruiting, and employee retention can be duplicated in your own work life. So listen up, listeners, whether you are a business leader or you're just seeking employment at a company that contributes to something greater than themselves. So welcome, Akhtar. Thank you very much, Carol, and I'm delighted to be with you. You are the guru of <laughs> purpose and business, and we have learned so much from you along the many years that we've had a chance to work with you and your firm. Well, you're, you're, you're delightful, but there's a lot to learn from you. So let me share with our readers a little bit more about who you are, and then we're going to get into our wonderful conversation. So Akhtar Badshaw is an expert on social impact, philanthropy, corporate social responsibility, and international development. And he's also an author and an artist. He spent a decade at Microsoft, and that's where we met, from 2004 to 2014. He was Senior Director of Microsoft Citizenship and Public Affairs. He administered the company's global community investment and employee programs, which included gifts of cash, services, and software to not-for-profits around the world. After leaving Microsoft, Akhtar founded Catalytic Innovators Group, a consulting practice focused on accelerating social impact through catalytic innovation. I love that, catalytic innovation. We're going to learn some more about that today. He teaches at the University of Washington School of Business and Evans School of Public Policy and Governance. He also created Accelerating Social Transformation, a professional development course for those working in the social impact space. Before writing Purpose Mindset, he also co-authored Technology at the Margins, How IT Meets the Needs of Emerging Markets, and also wrote Our Urban Future. So let's get into our discussion today. 
Now, first, I'm going to ask a little bit about who you are personally. And then I'm going to do um, I, I do this piece called By the Numbers. Our By the Numbers are usually about the size of a company, its employees, its divisions. But Octar's numbers are a little different. But first, Octar, who is Octar Badshaw? Tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, what did it look like in the early years? I'm still trying to discover who I am, Carol. <laughs> okay. Because as you can see, I have spent my 40 years in the workforce doing different things. I started off as an architect and taught architecture at MIT, went into the nonprofit sector, focused on cities, and then launched a nonprofit to bridge the digital divide, joined Microsoft as its head of community affairs, which is now Microsoft Philanthropies, and ran its program. And now I'm back into teaching, but not what I'm qualified to teach. <laughs> so in some ways, I'm constantly trying to discover new ways in which I can apply my intellect and my social connections to ensure that everything that we are doing is extending the common good. And that's the basic idea behind writing the book, Purpose Mindset, as to how do we encourage everyone to go beyond thinking of personal growth, which is important, of absolutely, course. but to also think about how do we impact the community and make a difference in life? And let's just talk about, in simple description, what does purpose mindset mean? So, in a very simple way, it is a way to get people to recognize that every single one of us has a deeper purpose in life. Most of us look at what are we doing, which is our career. Am I a doctor? Am I an architect? Am I an engineer? But very rarely do we actually step back and ask not what I want to do and what I want to become, but who do I want to serve? And purpose allows you to discover that deep set of values that you have that then allows you to serve. And in doing so, you actually become part of a discipline. That, that's great. So we're going to get into that in a minute. But I want to jump into my by the numbers section, because it also is going to give our listeners an understanding of the alumni network of Microsoft. This is a tradition at Purpose 360. We always like to introduce our guests with uh, something called by the numbers. Now, the Purpose Mindset um, is a HarperCollins collaboration between HarperCollins leadership and the Microsoft Alumni Network. 
That alumni network was founded in 1995. It's a member organization of, yes, Microsoft alumni. It has over 50,000 alumni in 51 countries. Now, some other numbers that we will associate with Microsoft and Akhtar's time there. He was Senior Director of Microsoft Citizenship and Public Affairs from 2004 to 2014. In 2004, the company had $36 billion in revenue with about 55,000 employees. By 2014, the company had almost tripled its revenue to $86 billion with 128 employees. They started their giving in 1983 with $17,000 that were employee donations uh, through their United Way. Very simple, in 1983. And in 2019, the company's employees and the company matched their employees to hold on to your seats $221 million. Certainly, those are some by-the-numbers that are extraordinary from Microsoft and its great giving machine. So now let's go back to the beginning. So how was a giving culture established at Microsoft? And in your book, you talk about it. It was just tiny when it started. So this $220 million number is both the employee giving and the Microsoft match. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the cumulative figure. So in every company and in every person, right, in all our journeys, we have moments. And how do you discover that moment that can then turn into a movement? And in Microsoft's case, 1983, Mary Gates asked Bill Gates, her son, to start a employee payroll deduction program in support of United Way. That's, it's not a matching gifts program. It's just a way for employees to donate to United Way and have their amount deducted through their salary. That was $17,000 in 1983. However, this could have just withered away on the vines because Bill at that time was very focused on the company and driving the company. And rightly so. It's a young company is generating revenues. And even though he had giving into his bloodstream because of his parents, this was not the right time for him to focus on that. But in 1985, Bill Newcomb walks in as the chief legal officer. And he at that time asked Bill, and John Shirley, who is, was the president at that time, to 
also allow him to start four other groups under him. One, industry affairs, government affairs, corporate affairs, and community affairs. Now, I understand industry affairs, government affairs, corporate affairs, because the company was growing. It had relationships with governments. It had relationships with other companies. Software industry was becoming prominent. But I asked him, why community? And he basically said, look, he had also grown up in a family of people that were generous. His father was the head of the United Way for the West Coast in San Francisco. Mother was an active volunteer. And he basically looked at this group of very young people working day and night to change the world through software realize that they will need to establish roots in this community. They will grow here, they will get married here, they will have kids here, and they need to find ways to recognize the community and the community needs. And community affairs became that vehicle where he asked Bill to allow him to launch it with a employee matching gifts program of $1,000 to start with. And that, I believe, was the time where that moment that Mary Gates had ignited, that little catalyst that Mary Gates had ignited, Bill Newcomb just came and poured gas on it. In a good way. <laughs> In a <laughs> very good, good way, way. Right. Which just completely energized. But if you actually think about it from a business perspective, for any company, as you are hiring people and people are coming in and dedicating the time to work for you, what are you doing to ensure that they also establish roots in the community? Because they are spending most of their time working for you and have no time to discover the community. And that to me was the genius. And then, of course, you know, people who became heads of community affairs, including myself and my successors have all continued to make that machine work. And that machine today, what, what's the match is up, what, $15,000? So the match is now 15000 per employee, but it has also increased for the leadership and, you know, and Satya's direct, Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of the company, his directs, now can match up to 100,000. In those days, I mean, you know, we studied um, giving programs and matches were 500 or $1,000. But every time we benchmarked, you would see Microsoft blowing any other company's match out of the water. It was incredibly generous. Why? Well, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I never got a straight answer why. <laughs> okay. But... But here is what Bill Gates, when I interviewed him, said. He said, we just wanted to be bold, right? And, and also the match was to any nonprofit organization of your choice, right? It was going through United Way, but you could donate to anybody. He also, I think in his head, calculated not everybody was going to max out. And most people even today don't max out. So I think he just 
took that bold step to say that this was not something that was on the side. This was going to be core to the DNA of the culture of the company. And this is what is going to drive the culture of the company. That this was not going to be a good to have or a nice to have. This is going to be something that is going to become central to the company. And I think that were these unwritten decisions that were made that I don't believe are easy to overturn now because they're so ingrained. So in your book, you talk about that Microsoft became a great giving machine. So can you talk about, besides Bill Newcomb, um, what were some of the other critical things that happened? I think you talked about Pamela Passman and that she contributed to part of that journey to become this flywheel spinning forward to become the great giving machine. What were some of the other inflection points? Yeah, so so there are a couple of things, right? So Pamela Passman, who hired me, you know, she convinced Steve Ballmer to move the fiduciary, the the budget of giving the employee match to HR and that it would be seen as a benefit and not just philanthropy. And in doing so, you actually opened up for this to now become something that could continuously grow, right? So if it was given to us as an annual budget, I don't know, take 20 million, now, once 20 million got used up, there was nothing more we could do. But by keeping this as an HR benefit, it could be endless in some ways. And Pamela said that this was the quickest decision Steve Bama made. <laughs> and not easy to get decisions out of and Steve Bama. No. To get Steve Bama to make that right? decision. And he just said, yes, go wow. for it. That was brilliant. Absolutely. And we increased it from 12,000, from 10,000 to 12,000. The second thing we did is that when I came in and when Pamela and I were there and Kevin Espirito, who was running this, the employee engagement piece, the company's stock did not grow. So it wasn't that people were becoming fabulously rich. People were well paid, but most of the employees who had joined at that time were not becoming rich like the early generation. So this notion that people actually had additional cash to invest was you know, not necessarily true. So what we did is that we actually introduced a volunteer match program where for every hour you volunteered, the company at that time would match $17 per hour to the nonprofit that you were volunteering. And now it is $25 an hour. But what that did is that it continued to increase participation. Right? More and more people got involved because now they felt they didn't have to write a check. They could just go volunteer. And then we saw that in two, three years, as employees became more stable and their income became more stable, they started writing checks to these organizations. So it was this way to get people more and more motivated. When we first started this in the early days, 
it was hyper competitive, right? There were these events on campus. The events are still happening on campus, but there were competition between groups and people would get dunked in Lake Bill and they would do <laughs> all sorts of crazy things. Right. As the company matured, many employees felt forced that they were being forced to do some of these things. So we had to kind of dial that back without impacting the ability for people to give. So it became, even though every year we continued to increase the amount that we were donating through the employees and through the match, how we got employees motivated changed. And what, what, what were the most effective ways to get them motivated besides more cash? I mean, I think the couple of things that one, one is first, this was only the month of October where they could give and get matched. We basically said it's year round. Give anytime you want. You get matched anytime you want. People are not waiting for the month of October to do their charity. People plan this ahead of time. So just these simple acts of improving, right? Of course, technology came into play. So we went from paper-driven to online, mobile. People could track, people could check, people could get pinged. So there were all of these things that happened with today, you know, they've introduced micro-volunteering where you can volunteer for a few minutes and get that time counted. So, so these are all just ways by which you continue to increase. Of course, Satya Nadella came in 2014 and introduced the hackathon, and which was the way by which people came together from different disciplines to work on a hack. And the philanthropies team introduced Hack for Good, where people were able to work with nonprofit organizations and provide them with technical solutions. So all of these things is what is needed to keep moving that dial, because just because it is part of the DNA doesn't mean that it will continue to grow if you don't care and feed for it. Okay, so you, so you constantly had to add energy and fun and new ideas just as the company was growing and acquiring new companies and having new sorts of products and lines. You have to tend to your garden of giving. Exactly. That's great. So you have, I know that in the earlier years at Microsoft, since it was it went from small to really large, that I think I read in your book that the company uh, created 12,000 millionaires. I think that was early the, on. Yeah, early, early on. Early on, they created 12,000 millionaires. Right. Now, probably they're much more. <laughs> okay. So there are also... But now that the stock has gone up, you know, after Satya has taken the taken over the... And the stock has just gone through the roof. Oh, well, I, I was a stockholder for forever. And I always, we always, oh, we just, you know, two for one, two for one. I went, cool, cool. I'm just putting it in my yeah. IRA. So um, talk a little bit about some of the individuals that were truly went beyond just the giving culture to creating their own movements. I mean, you know, Room to Read is one of my favorites. Teals is also one. I don't know if you want to talk about those. Yeah, but yeah. So let me, let me start off with Teals first, just to kind of, because Teals became so central and is still central to the company. Teals is a program which brings tech volunteers into high schools to teach computer science. and. Kevin Wang 
Chinese American parents immigrated here, lived on the in the Bay Area, you know, went to Berkeley High, did his computer science, came to Berkeley University, but was always involved in helping other kids in school learn computer science. When he finishes his degree, instead of going and working for a computer company, which he could have gone and worked for anyone, went and worked for a private school in the Bay Area to set up their computer science program. Got so enamored by that whole approach and said, you know, I now need to learn how to teach. I know how to code, but I need that educational discipline. Goes to Howard, gets his master's in education, and then realizes that, you know, hey, I need to make some money. <laughs> okay. A lot of student debt. Okay. And comes to Microsoft as an employee. At Microsoft, he does the same thing. While he's in school I and mean, while he's in he's working, he's living in Ballard. He goes and talks to the principal at Ballard High and says, hey, can I come and volunteer and teach computer science? And the principal says, yes. And he does that. And then, you know, his friends get to know about it. And he asks a couple of friends to join him. And he, they go to another school and a third school and a fourth school. And we kind of hear about this, and my colleague Jane Broom, who worked for me, I mean, she's kind of slowly feeding him a little bit of money. But at that point, none of us are really looking at this thing as being anything worthwhile supporting. Right? Now, I get a call from Satya Nadella. He was not the CEO at that time. He was the head of the Azure group. And he basically calls and says, hey, look, there is this guy, Kevin Wang. Why is he not working for you? Why is he in my team? It seems that what he's doing is what the company should be supporting and doing. But here he's spending his daytime trying to code, but his mind is teaching kids computer science. And Dave Thompson, under whose group he was working for, had taken him as a mentor, found out what he was doing. When Dave was retiring, he went and had his exit interview with Satya Nadella, mentioned that to Satya. Satya picks up the phone, calls me. And I basically said, I don't have the money to hire him. I have no money. So he said, what do you need? I said, I need a headcount and I need budget. And we got that. And what it did is that it transformed the program from four schools to now 600 schools, where there are thousands of people from Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Twitter, across the tech industry, even the defense companies in the East Coast or others are all going and volunteering and teaching kids computer science and high school and AP computer science. Now, the program started off with underserved schools and is still focused on underserved schools. People are now, even before, now we are all telecommuting and all you know remote teaching. We were remote teaching in schools in North Dakota, South Dakota, Alaska, Kentucky, where there is no, you know, in rural schools, people are just beaming into the classrooms and teaching. And more girls 
have gone through this program learning computer science than any of the girls who coach programs that are just focused on girls, just because this is being taught within the classroom. More kids of color, more kids of Latino and African background, and they are scoring much higher in their AP tests than the national average. So, so what it has done is that now it has a way by which technology-based company employees are able to give their time into what they know in a way that makes sense. But Kevin, because he went and got education, did not replace the teachers. He went into the classroom and said, we are only here as volunteers. We will augment your teaching. And now after two, three years, four years, they're moving into different schools because the teachers have now learned how to teach. So it's a fantastic program. And I'm most proud of that I got forced into doing it. I cannot take credit that I was wise enough to actually do it. So let me ask a question. I want to ask a question, Akhtar. Regarding sharing, you know, companies very much, they they get a signature focus and they go, I'm not going to share it. This is all about us. What did you do? What, What was that seminal moment, that trigger that all of a sudden somebody said, yeah, let's invite the whole tech world into this because we, these kids really need the help. Just size. It was just size. I mean, simply put, I mean, you know, we could do things in Seattle, but if we wanted to do things in the Bay Area, yes, we have employees in the Bay Area, but if we really want to reach the Bay Area schools, we need to tap into the, and, and again, you know, look, we all, I mean, people who are in the philanthropy world all talk. And, you know, Kevin was this just this mover and shake. I mean, in the sense that he had friends in all of these companies, right? So he basically just picked up the phone and said, hey, you want to go volunteer in this school? <laughs> okay. So it, it was just the right thing to do. He just felt it, it in his right gut. Right. Yeah. Well, good, good for you to do that. Now, talk to me about Room to Read. John is another interesting story, right? So John comes into Microsoft, marketing background, is doing marketing work, is a outdoor type, runs marathon, goes on hikes, gets posted to Asia, first to Sydney, and then to Hong Kong, and decides to go on a trek in the Himalayas and goes on a trek and runs into these shacks, which are schools, and has a conversation with one of the principals there in this little tiny shack, and they basically ask him for books. And he says, yeah, I'll come back with books for you. And that principal probably heard this a zillion times by Westerners who are trekking past him. And they all kind of say, yeah, we'll come back with books. But John decided to do something about it and went back and talked to his friends and said, can we get books together? And next week, next year, I'll go on this hike again and I'll go deliver the books. And suddenly they had about 30,000 books or something that they got. 
So they had bunch of yaks and donkeys and his father came on this trip and they went and delivered these books. And they went, you know, then the word spread that, you know, all of this along this whole Nepali route, people had lined up to get the books. And that became the genesis of what he decided to do was to leave the company and start Room to Read, which is now impacting millions of kids in 20,000 plus schools and communities in 10 plus countries around the world. And they're raising, you know, they've raised over $650 million. Really? Just through That's these extraordinary. little gatherings of people who are donating money, getting it matched, getting the books. And, you know, they have partnered with the government and the local authorities to ensure that they are responsible for the construction of these libraries and schools and not, and they're running it. So, so again, in both cases, what I want to be able to highlight is that they took their business acumen, growth mindset, and applied it to purpose, and developed a purpose mindset which is a little different because in many cases, your growth mindset may not necessarily bode you well in a philanthropic environment. So explain the difference between a growth mindset and a purpose mindset. So the growth mindset is, you know, I mean, look, Carl Dweck has written multiple books on the growth mindset, right? Where he said you you should go from a fixed mindset where you are an expert and know it all and you're just focused on doing what you do and keep doing it well to a growth mindset where you're a constant learner, learning from failures, discovering new things. And in many cases, you know, that's what I've been. You know, I, I move across many disciplines and learn new things. Purpose mindset is how do you move that frame from self-growth, self-benefit, and a institutional benefit to benefiting the society at large. And there, your frame needs to change of how you think about it. And I identified five principles that kind of help you move through that. And the book, in some ways, is a reflection of stories of individuals who have gradually moved from a hyper-competitive business environment into now becoming leaders in a philanthropic space. Let's take a break and find out what else is happening besides this podcast that you may want to know about. As President-elect Biden uh, goes through the process of selecting cabinet members as well as key members of his administration, it's also good to know that young people um, are continuing to raise their voices to be heard. 
Millennials and Generation Z now make up the largest voting bloc in the United States, currently an estimated 37% and growing, but they are underrepresented in government. These young voters want to be heard. To help structure and deliver outcomes to the Biden administration, youth advocacy organizations have formulated a 100-day plan of policies that the coalition wants to see from the incoming administration. Spearheaded by Young Invincibles, that's younginvincibles.org, no space. They're a research and advocacy group for the needs of 18 to 34-year-olds. They've created an agenda that contains seven policy areas for what they call a long overdue change for youth that includes higher education, immigration, housing, and climate. Some of the founders of this group made the following statement in a recent Fast Company article. One thing that we see constantly is that youth are always left out of the meetings, says Carlos Mark Vera, co-founder and executive director of Pay Our Interns. So the whole point of this, he says, let's make sure that we have policies crafted for young people by young people. That's really important to be heard. So I hope that you will um, go to younginvincibles.org to take a look at the 100-day plan. It's fascinating. And certainly youth, because of their millions and millions and growing clout, will have, we hope, um, an impact on the incoming administration. Now back to our conversation with Akhtar. So I would love you to talk about the five principles um, that really contributes to a purpose mindset. So you start off by talking about discovering strengths, and then you talk about working from abundance. So can you walk us through those? So the first is work from your strengths. We have always been taught to solve problems. Identify a problem, solve it. What we don't do often enough is to dream and design what you want to be. And so we don't focus on our strengths. And I'll give you one story that I write about, which is D'Angelo's son is born with a stroke at birth. And one side of his body is paralyzed. And for the first three years, they basically focused on helping the kid, you know, overcome his weaknesses. Till they met a neuroscientist who basically talked to them about the mirror image and said, focus on his strengths. And if you can get his strengths to continue to improve, his weaker side will mirror image it and improve. And that's what they have seen. And what they did is that it actually shifted their look. They did not see the kid as a problem. They actually saw his their kid as a kid and an opportunity. And that, so, so work from your strengths. Second, we will always have scarcity of resources. Even a billionaire is going to tell you, I have, I don't have enough money to solve everything. What you have to discover 
is how do you put on a frame of abundance? Kevin Wang went from four schools to 600 schools. He didn't come and ask me, I need a $10 million budget and I want to train a thousand Microsoft employees. He basically asked and said, hey, can I just do work with these three schools and improve it, increase it to four and five? And so think about how do you build from existing resources in a small ways so that it actually becomes something big? Third, focus on effectiveness of what you do versus the efficiency of what you do. It's so easy for us to get focused on doing things the right way versus discovering the right thing to do. What is going to extend the common good? Fourth, focus on movements and not organizations. Teals is a movement. Room to Read became a movement. The organization becomes the vessel through which that idea circulates. But the movement was every single individual he asked felt that they were actually helping kids learn to read. Mm-hmm. Ver- yeah, versus joining Room to Read. Versus joining Room to Read. Yeah, something so bigger. think about what is the higher purpose of what you're doing versus the organization that is actually going to get you to that higher purpose. Microsoft was never a software company. The software company became a vehicle. For Bill and Paul Allen, it was all about using software to change people's lives for the better, which is why so many people joined. Mm-hmm. And so no, many it's people a huge, adopted. Yeah, it was a huge movement, absolutely. And then move from just being generous to expanding your sense of empathy and moving towards compassion. Now, Kailash Satyati, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2014, the Dalai Lama, Nelson Mandela, they all discovered compassion because they are willing to give their life for the good of anybody they meet, irrespective of whether they know that person or not. The majority of us are never going to get there and should not get there. (laughs) But if we move from that single act of generosity, which is today is giving Tuesday where so many of us are going to do these single acts of generosity, how do we take that and increase our empathy to these organizations that you have contributed? And in doing so, help them move further along the route to compassion. And if you can do that, then we kind of move from the focus on the me to the focus on the we. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned Giving Tuesday. Um, It's it's an amazing idea. Um, I want to ask about um, Satya because, and you touched upon this a bit, um, and you know, he's a very special person. I loved his book. But, you know, he talked about changing the culture at Microsoft because Microsoft was so aggressive. And, you know, he said he wanted to evolve the culture from an organization of know-it-alls to an organization of learn-it-alls. What was 
the giving engine part of that and the work that you were doing in your group and then you left and your group continued? In in some ways, it's just softening the individual, right? We don't want to not be hyper-competitive if you are in a business. It's not as if, you know, Satya is not hyper-competitive. But how do you look at competition not as a win-it-all, but really focused on the impact, right? So Satya basically got people to start thinking about empathy and purpose. And the employee giving campaign, the employee giving program, in my mind, was just the company square. It's a place where different people from all sorts of life gathered around a common cause, around a common purpose. So whether you were a CEO of the company, whether you were a junior most person, could all volunteer around certain things and your status fell away, your wealth fell away, your color fell away, your political affiliations fell away. And what it became is a place for bridging and the creation of bridging networks rather than a bonding network. And Satya recognized this ability that empathy and purpose will help create bridging networks. And that bridging network will make the company even more competitive but in a way that it is actually leaving behind value to the world and not just functioning as an extraction engine. That's a great line, not just an extraction engine. And why is that so important today? Look at where we are. We, around the world, not just in the U.S., we are just hyper-divided. We are, in families, we are divided. We are not willing to talk to somebody with a different idea and a thought process. We are, and I'm doing that too, right? We are all guilty of it. We are all just so, but I think that if companies invest in these opportunities where it brings different people together around not just selling the company or the product, but to do something for the community, you now start seeing the humanity in a person. You then not see whether that person is black, brown, male, female, senior VP, junior employee, but you see the humanity. And that exposure to humanity is the first place where your muscles are breaking out of your own tightly held values and having a conversation with somebody else stop. That's great. That's re- that's really wonderful. You and I could have this conversation for hours, but um, I think we have to get close to wrapping this up. I wanted to ask you if you were, you've given lots of advice here and it's incredible, but if you were going to give three key points 
to our listeners to create a giving engine and to truly create a culture of empathy and compassion, what would those three suggested ideas be? So one, it's really not about giving. It is about shifting your frame of whether you are being inclusive. So if you are inclusive, then you are actually opening up opportunities for your employees to then share their purpose in a way that they want to, and then creating various opportunities for them to do that. Giving maybe one platform. In Microsoft, it became the platform to do that, which has then extended into creations of other platforms. But for some companies, it may be create a hackathon, a way by which employees just go out and volunteer. So that's one. Second, every single company at even the earliest stages can do this. It is finding the right champion that can promote it in a way that does not get disruptive to the overall mission of the company. And it is not always necessary that the CEO has to drive it. The CEO needs to bless it. Okay, that's a great, great comment. And then the third, which you have talked about quite a bit, Carol, is how are companies creating a purpose? Without a purpose, companies are not going to thrive in this day and age. But you have also written a lot on how do you activate that purpose? It is not just a slogan. And that activation only comes if your employees are also being seen as driving purpose. And as Raj Sisodia, our colleague, talks about the healing organization, purpose is that renewable source of energy that keeps humanity go forward. And if we can find different ways in which we give purpose to employees or individuals, then you're helping them recharge the batteries and they don't feel depleted. So I want to thank you for this wonderful conversation. Um, I wanted to ask two other things because I'm going to start a, a new um, ritual that I will then, we're, we have our first ebook coming out, uh, which is going to be our, most of our first 25 interviews. Uh, we've been doing this for two years, but I want to ask you besides purpose mindset, what other book would you recommend to our listeners to read who want to become smarter about purpose? I would actually, you know, recommend Robert Reich's book called The Common Good. That, I think, is just a terrific book. David Brooks has written the book, The Second Mountain. Oh, I love David Brooks. Oh, he's great. And yeah. that is a very interesting okay. read. You can give me two. Okay. Um, I, then I want to ask you in closing, you had in your book a comment 
and I am a Harry Potter freak. And so you use this quote from Albus Dumbledore. I didn't include all his middle names, but there are many I don't even know. And you said, happiness can be found even in the darkest of times, if only one remembers to turn on the light. Why did you include that in the book? Because I just felt that it was the simplest way to actually say what is purpose. Purpose is turning that, on the light. Is just turn on your inside light. That's great. I, I mean, <laughs> just just think of it. You walk past somebody. Most of the time, they ignore you. Once in a while, somebody smiles at you. That smile lights up your face immediately, and you may never run into that person ever again. But it's that just simple act of turning on that inner light makes the place smile. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, Akhtar, this has been an amazing conversation. We're going to have to uh, touch base more often than every few years or so. Um, I want to hear more about your your new organization. And um, I just want, this is a f- really great, uh, the book is going to be a big success. We're going to help you promote it. Um, do you have any other just last words to say before I close? Just, just that if people are interested in getting a book in this virtual world, it's very hard to travel and sign books. <laughs> right. So I have a independent bookseller here, which is localislandbooks.com. If you buy it from them, I will send you a personalized signed copy. Love it. Okay. Because I go there and sign books. So please support your local book sellers. Go beyond Small Business and Saturday. whoever else you want to support, but give today as part of Giving Tuesday. And, and beyond Giving Tuesday, because as you learned at Microsoft, it wasn't just giving in October. You spread it to the entire year. So I want to thank you so much, Akhtar, my dear friend. This has been a great conversation. And I want to just let my listeners know that you can listen to Purpose 360 wherever you like to listen to your podcast, Spotify, Apple, and many other places. Please go and rate our show so that more people find it because purpose is so important. Whether you are a career changer, whether you're working in a company, or whether you're a student, um, there's such an amazing career path for you. You can learn from Akhtar Badshah because he's a guru and many others and then uh hopefully someday you'll send me an email and you're going to answer the question i'm going to end with today what is your purpose <laughs>